I'm going to share a secret with you. Are you ready? You are biased. Now, don't deny it. It's true. If you have a brain, you have bias. Bias forms from our own experiences. It forms from the invisible lens through which we all subconsciously see the world. And it exists in all aspects of our lives. Now, rooted in the creative problem-solving methodology of design thinking are tools that are intended to help us overcome bias. But without being aware of it, design thinking itself can inherently be biased. One of the best ways to take control over bias is simply recognizing where it exists. In this two-part series, Sharon Bowler and I will be discussing ways that bias can rear its ugly head in design thinking to help you be more aware so that collectively we can overcome unintentional bias and uncover the real truth for our customers. You're listening to Ahead of Tomorrow, the podcast that discusses topics to help today's workforce prepare for and stay ahead of tomorrow. The idea of the future can be overwhelming, but it doesn't have to be. We'll help you prepare by sharing insights and research from today's industry professionals, thought leaders, and real people. Now, please welcome your host, Keith Keating. I'm excited to have Sharon Bowler with us for this two-part episode on bias in design thinking. Now, Sharon is a career-long learning and development thought leader. She's also an author of three books, the most recent being Design Thinking for Training and Development, published by ATD Press just a couple of months ago. Sharon, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Keith. I'm so excited to be here and excited to talk to a fellow practitioner and passionate advocate for design thinking. What's the first thought that pops into your mind when I say the word bias? There's a risk of bias in everything. We're inherently biased. I couldn't agree with you more there. Now, when it comes to design thinking, even the name might be considered a bit biased. So it's a little bit confusing because it's called design thinking. And so I think folks tend to get focused on that word design and consider it a process for designing things, but it's really a process for designing solutions to problems. And it's very useful when there is a tremendous amount of unknown about both the problem and the optimal solution. And I would say that I think the name itself is a little bit of a misnomer And to your point, it challenges people because they'll say, well, I'm not a designer, so I can't use design thinking, or I don't want a a thought process. I don't want some sort of strategic 10,000 foot view. I want something that's action oriented. And the reality is design thinking is action oriented from the beginning all the way to the end of the process. It really is. We're rooted in experience. So I think design thinking is about creating optimal experiences for people. So we say the word solution, and I think if you swap out the word solution for experience, it's going to solve the problem. It it perhaps works better. And any experience that we have elicits feelings in us. So it influences our mindset, our way of thinking about it. Our way of thinking always influences how we behave, and how we behave then influences outcomes. So I consider it an optimal process if you really need to achieve meaningful, large-scale results. 
And there's a lot of different use cases. And it's very it's a very subjective, fluid methodology or process, which is something that I love about it. It is subjective and it's it, although it positions itself as, in my opinion, trying to not be subjective. Because by starting with that empathize step, when we say we're going to do ethnographic research, we're going to get insights from the actual users to try to eliminate our own subjectivity. So to get rid of the opinions that we might have had about what the problem actually is before we've ever done any research on the part of the users. But you're right, we can't help overlaying our own biases into the process. And you have to be really, really careful. So while my typical use case is learning experience design, my organization, I pitched the idea of using design thinking approach to really explore race and racism in the workplace which is a, what would be put in quotes, wicked problem, a very large scale problem that's not unique to, it's not my workplace, it's American workplaces, right? And probably workplaces globally. And so this idea of how do we recognize it, talk about it and deal with it in our workplaces. Those of us who led that team came into it and we did all the right things in terms of establishing um, a group of target users, i.e. employees of varying backgrounds, but we bring our own biases into that. And so you have to be so careful when you're doing the ethnographic research and doing the listening that you don't unintentionally hear what you want to hear rather than what is actually being said. You know, you have to have a space, a problem space that you're going to at least start from, even though you know you're going to work toward coming up with a better definition of the problem. So we started with the challenge space that in the past, conversations about race and racism have largely been taboo in the workplace. It's a little bit like religion and politics. It's a topic that you avoid, that that's the past. It's been taboo. And in the future, we want conversations to be welcomed and encouraged. The idea behind that being that if we can talk about it, then we can start to solve for it. And the reasoning behind that is because so much of racism ends up showing up in the workplaces, in the systems that exist around it, um, in our in our pay structures, in our promotion policies, in how we recruit, how we rehire, how we hire, in what our executive teams look like, in our boards of directors look like, etc. So I felt like a really important topic to tackle. And we did, and I'm really excited with the outcomes we got from our initial insight sprint. But it's a place, as you go through it, you start to see, wow, this is a very easy for bias to unintentionally creep into the work. You, you have tremendous responsibility as the researcher not to allow your own biases to influence the data that you're getting. What type of bias do you experience within the empathy research? So specific to this project, the project I just described to you, our own pre-existing beliefs about power and how it shows up and how it influences what happens. We had to be really careful as we were doing background research or reading articles, et cetera, that what we were reading didn't get mixed in with what we were hearing directly from interviewees. Is what you do as part of the process in design thinking is after you've done all this interviewing, you have these playbacks 
and you literally are trying to play back exactly what you heard and observed. And then from what you heard and observed, you form insights. And it's easy to start mixing what you heard and observed with what you might have read somewhere else. And suddenly you're making statements or it's suggesting insights that really didn't come from the users themselves or the, the target group that you're studying. And that's what I mean about it creeping, biases creeping in. Or maybe you already had an opinion about what's going on or what the views of a particular population are. And you start to imagine that you're hearing things that you're not really hearing. That's where the importance of coding the data through the qualitative research is so important. And I didn't understand that initially when I first started on my design thinking practitioner journey. And as I look back, the more that I've grown and developed in the realm, I realized that a lot of the first initiatives had my own vocabulary in it, my own words. Yeah. And so I thought, first of all, it's important people understand the criticality of the empathy phase being properly prepared for, but also executed. And it is, I think, the most important, but also the phase that takes the longest for preparation. And so what I found that I was doing is I would, during my interviews, I would repeat back what I thought that I heard and I would ask them to confirm it. And most of the times they would say yes. And then I would take my words and use that as the data rather than their vocabulary. Yes. Fast forward, I learned that our words in empathy research don't matter. They don't get coded. They don't get tracked. It's only the user's vocabulary. And so when we were going back to try and find, well, who actually said this or who actually said that? Mm-hmm. We couldn't find anybody that said it. Yeah, yeah. And what I ha- what I actually ended up doing, because um, the beauty of technology, right? So because of COVID, everything we did was virtual and we used a tool called Miro. So when we did the playbacks, we would create a Miro board and we would literally put a post-it with the words of the, so as the interviewer was playing back the interview, those of us who were synthesizers would literally write down, this is what we're hearing, this is what was said. And that would be confirmed. And then I had the ability to export every one of those post-its out so I could kind of have a transcript. And so then when we started getting into the insight gathering, it was like, was that really said? Or was that as frequently as we think it was? I started just doing a find for certain words that we swore we must have heard 20 times (laughs) so that I could see how many times did we actually come across that word? Mm -hmm. Was it just once? And we magnified it in our minds because we agreed with it? Or was it really 10 times giving us evidence that, no, this really was pulling through to an insight? It was really helpful to put some rigor to it in how you're evaluating and studying and analyzing the data that you're gathering. And I think before you even get to that phase, one of the things I like to do is at the very beginning, talk about the assumptions. What are our assumptions that we have, all of us? What are our validations? What I find is the majority of the team is trying to validate an idea rather than understand from that end user's perspective. And so one of the best practices I found yeah. is let's talk about all of this upfront. Do you have any best practices that you use with your teams? 
So you actually have to go back and find your evidence. Where are we seeing it in the research? So that we have a, we can, we actually have the evidence to support whatever insight we formed or whatever point of view emerged from our insight. So point of view can be a substitution for problem statement. And if we're getting to the defined stage, we're going to form a point of view. This is the problem we want to solve. So it's being sure that we can link back to the evidence rather than to an opinion. Show me the linkage and the strength of the linkage. Was it one piece of data or was it five pieces of data? Right. That, that is a very important distinction because if we find that one piece of data and it's something that we're interested in and that we were attempting to validate, then we may be subconsciously trying to exploit that and bringing that to the surface as if it's a bigger issue. And that's where the, the discussion and the data analysis come into play because you're going to uncover a lot of different insights, but the more that you hear the, the repetition or similar type insights, that's going to give credibility to your data. And so we don't necessarily want to run amok with every single one-off that we're hearing. It's more about what is the, the consensus of the data that we're seeing and hearing. And you know, Keith, one other thing I would add is when I think about validation, I think evaluating the construction of your team is also important. You know, design thinking is big on cross-functional teams and not heavily populating with only one kind of expertise or one perspective. And I think that matters. Mm -hmm. Deliberately constructing your team so that you have varying viewpoints on it from the get-go is a useful counterbalance to unintentional bias and then paying attention so that one person's voice is not dominating within the team. That is a really critical component. In fact, for my teams, when we do the ideation phase, I bring in additional people that weren't part of the workshop or weren't part of the activity mm -hmm. up to that point. So what I find is when we're trying to solve problems with the people we've already been working with, we're going to come up with the same ideas we've already had. Why would they necessarily magically be able That's to come right. up with something new? But if we bring in outside thinkers who don't have that historical context of why this has failed before, why there's no budget, why you know the client mm -hmm. will never go for this, it helps us think outside of the box. It does. And I think that's a great point, too, is thinking um, more broadly about what team means. And team doesn't mean the exact same group of five people from the moment you kick things off with the empathize stage to the finish of it when you've pushed out the final product. Your team can be fluid. You may have a few core members that stay with it, but you should be bringing in fresh faces and voices depending on the stage of work that you're in. Yeah, I was going to say our synthesizers can be different than the people that were the listeners doing the uh, interviewing. And the same with the testing. I, I like to bring in and, and change out people for the testing phase because, and I'll, I'll speak firsthand, when I or my team come up with an idea, I get really excited and passionate about that idea uh -huh. and I want that idea to work. <laughs> so it's probably <laughs> not in the best interest of anybody if I'm on the same team that's ideating and that's testing. Because what I found is I have bias during the testing phase and I'm trying to convince the user why this is the right solution. And then what I find too is that 
if they're not using it properly or understanding it properly, then I try to coach them through it, which has yes. basically ruined the prototype or the testing phase because it's no longer a true environment. I've now influenced that environment. Yes. I do a lot of uh, game design and play testing is part of that. So game design is very similar in how it's going to follow those steps of design thinking and truth. You have to know who you're designing the game for and making sure that you're designing it for that person, not for yourself. And then when it comes time to play test your early versions of the game, it's so important that you have actual target testers there, people who are your target for that game, and that you stay silent. You're there as an observer, and the only moment in which you should intervene is if people become truly stuck and you can't go forward at all. And then you're just trying to coach them to get them back on track so that they can finish. And you're taking furious notes about the point at which they got stuck, which shows a clear breakdown in something in your design. But it's it's hard to stay silent. You want to convince yourself, oh, they just weren't paying attention. Or you offer an excuse for why it didn't go as well as it should have. So bias in design thinking, empathy phase. What are some some ways that we need to be aware of bias in the empathy phase? Well, I'm going to talk specifically about learning design for this one, because I think bias is so rampant. The first place I think it can exist is that oftentimes the stakeholder is coming to you asking for training as a solution to a problem that they've, they, they already have bias, number one, that they know what the problem is. And oftentimes they have bias in the fact that they know what the learner needs. So you're starting out with a bit of a stacked deck going in that you somebody has an idea of how they want your research to come out. So you have to watch for that kind of bias. And then you yourself may introduce bias because you can't help but have a preconceived notion of what the problem might be or what the users, the target learners, are going to say about it. So you have to watch for those kinds of bias. Um, And then the other thing that you have to really watch for is when you ask to talk to actual target learners and you are instead given a quote-unquote representation of the target learner. So this person had this job a few years ago. They know what it's like. You can talk to them and they'll be able to give you good answers. Or this person manages this role that is the target of this. They'll be able to give you good answers. So there, it's like a game of telephone there. It's second, third, or fourth-hand information at that point, which makes the whole thing a really biased, flawed piece. That's a really important distinction because I hear that a lot. Uh, well, I was in this role for six years before, so I can speak on behalf. Mm-hmm. That was six years ago. That's not, you're, you're not representative of the role today. So we need to speak now, to the people who are doing the job today. Yeah. And another way that bias can weirdly get introduced in the empathy, empathy or empathize stage is depending on the context where you're doing your research. So if you gather people together in a conference room, for example, and that's the only context that you have when you are talking to this learner, 
and you never actually get to see the environment in which they're working, that can introduce an odd form of bias too, because you've got an incomplete picture. You don't really understand their context. And context truly is, is everything. Context is the relevancy. And we should, yeah. we, we should be blank sheets of paper. So going in with a completely fresh mindset and your job is just to uncover and understand from them. And so if you haven't dug down deep enough by not doing that, you're creating a sense of bias because you're filling in those gaps yourself. That's right. And I think we do that a lot. So if you think about one of the tools of design thinking is empathy mapping. And an empathy map has these quadrants. It's not really quadrants because there's more than four, but you're wanting to know what does this person think? What is this person feeling? What is this person seeing, hearing, and doing? And there is a temptation to make assumptions about what they're thinking and feeling rather than explicitly asking them. Well, on top of that, the, the way that we ask the questions can be biased. If they're yes, no questions, if they're leading questions, if they're validation questions. You know, what I find, especially in North America, is we tend to get uncomfortable when there's silence. So we'll ask a question, and if someone is pausing to think, we'll try and fill in that void. Mm -hmm. And we'll either reframe the question with a little bit more context, maybe leading you in the, the direction that I'm hoping that you go into, or we twist up the, the question and maybe reframe it completely a, a different way. And now the end user has to readjust what they're thinking rather than when you ask the question, sit in that silence, give them the time to think about what their answer is before you try and lead them down another path. Yes. And then checking your assumptions. So if I ask you to tell me the process you use when you are selling your widget and I watch and listen as you're talking and you get rather animated or agitated as you talk about a particular part, it's incumbent on me to say, I'm noticing that you seemed more excited or agitated as you um, explained this step to me. Can you tell me more about that? So that I ask for the clarity I need rather than just making an assumption. And so I can hear that person tell me, and then they might say, oh no, it's not really that I'm agitated. It's this, but it's important to check out all those observations and not just merely make the observation. Absolutely. And unpacking, you know, Mm -hmm. Asking more questions to understand more to your point, not taking that first level response and us assuming what that means at a greater level. And I think the, the confirmation bias is also important. So, so we've got a couple of biases in empathy phase. You have confirmation bias, you have the false consensus effect. I really like mm -hmm. how you pointed out the who, who are you talking to? That's an important distinction that we're evaluating to make sure that we're not being biased by them. Where are you talking to them? And then, of course, not making assumptions. Yes. And I, you know, I think that your false consensus bias is an important one to bring up because so often we're doing focus group interviews where you have a group of five or four that you're interviewing together. And there can be the temptation when one person speaks to assume that that person is speaking for everyone in the group. 
So treating each person within that group as an individual who may have unique perceptions, beliefs, experiences, etc., matters. Check out part two of Bias and Design Thinking as we delve deeper into bias within each phase of design thinking and yeah. <clears throat> Check out part two of this series as we delve deeper into bias within each phase of design thinking and strategies for overcoming it. Thank you for joining this episode of Ahead of Tomorrow. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss out on more insights to help you be future ready. If you have a topic you would like covered, please drop us a line at podcast at keithkeating.com.